Today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 11. We'll be focusing on just the first two verses, but I'll read for us the first four verses. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we are so grateful that you have revealed truth in your word to guide us, to teach us, to transform us. And we ask now that you would reveal to us through these words which you have written by your spirit, that you would show us your heart, the glory of the gospel of your grace, and that you would teach us what you want us to know and make us what you want us to become for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that prayer is the most vital exercise of spiritual life. As breathing is to the body, so praying is to the soul. Because to pray is to communicate personally with God, to speak to Him, to be heard by Him, to relate to Him at all. And so prayer is, as is often said, the highest activity of the soul. And yet, if we were to be honest, it is probably one of the lowest activities on our priority list. It is often the most neglected spiritual exercise, even though it's the most fundamental to our spiritual health and well-being. And, And although prayer is the simplest and most accessible activity we could do, because you can do it anytime, anywhere... Yet still, we often find prayer to be the most difficult of all to carry out regularly and joyfully. And I'd venture to guess that most, if not all, the Christians in this room are dissatisfied with their prayer life to whatever degree. And hearing about the absolute importance of prayer, it only makes you feel more guilty every time. Because you know that you do not pray, not not only as frequently as you should, but as richly as you should. I know I feel that way. And if that's you, here we have the most gracious gift from God. This little passage often called the Lord's Prayer, which has been given to us to help us to pray. Not just to do it more consistently, but to help us to enjoy it, to relish it. Because here, as Luke chapter 11 opens up, we find that we are not the only ones who have ever felt some measure of dissatisfaction about our prayer lives. Evidently, Jesus' first disciples felt the same way. Notice the circumstance that gave rise to Jesus teaching this Lord's Prayer at all. It says in verse 1 that on one particular occasion, Jesus was praying, and when he was done, one of his disciples came up to him and said, Lord, could you teach us to pray? Now, why would the disciple ask this? Because he had never prayed before? No. But it's because he had been observing along with his fellow disciples, that there was something about Jesus' prayer life that was so different and so remarkable 
which they longed to taste and to experience for themselves. And if you've been with us throughout our study of Luke's gospel, haven't we observed the same? If you go back in chapter 5, to the passage in which Jesus heals a leper, after miraculously cleansing the leprous man, and then massive crowds came clamoring for his attention, that he would tend to their needs too. It says there in verse 16 of chapter 5, that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Notice the grammar there. It's not just a one-time thing that he did, and that he withdrew, but that he would withdraw. That is, it was his habitual custom. This is what he would do regularly, customarily. In response to the overwhelming demands of the innumerable crowds, which was indeed overwhelming for him, because he was truly man, Jesus habitually sought rest in the secret haven of prayer in the presence of the Father. Now for us, we often find prayer to be a demanding obligation, for which we feel like we need to squeeze out time to labor in it. But for Jesus, it was his only source of true comfort and rest in the face of the demands of ministry. And how convicted I am as I think this. Again, in chapter 6, verse 12, when Jesus was choosing his 12 apostles, it says that he went to the mountain to pray, verse 12, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And this is not an exaggeration. Jesus really did, not only here, but on many occasions, persist in prayer all through the night. You know, sometimes I'm so tired in the afternoon that I begin praying and when I'm done, I, I, I finish, I open my eyes after 45 minutes, but that's only because I fell asleep for 44 of those minutes. I don't know, is it just me? Maybe it is, everyone's just laughing at me. But for Jesus... There was something so invigorating about the manner in which he prayed that it was actually more energizing for him to pray through the night in lieu of sleep. You see, there was something different about how Jesus prayed. No one prayed like Jesus did. And the disciples knew this. They they saw this. Many people, many of the Jews, they prayed like the Pharisees did. Uh, Heaping up a lot of empty phrases, lifeless mechanical recitations, no joy, just uh, gotta do my duty, no real substance, no spiritual power. It was just a bunch of religious mantra and something you were supposed to do as a good religious person. But they saw a joy in Jesus' prayer, a comfort, a rest a real vitality, and they longed to know it for themselves, to experience it. And I know you do too, as I do. And so this one brave disciple piped up and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, he wasn't asking to be taught to pray like John the Baptist. He wanted to pray like Jesus, and he was appealing to Jesus on the basis of John having done it for his disciples, teaching them. In other words, the man was saying, Jesus, since we're your disciples, would you please do what John did for his guys in teaching them to pray? We so badly want to pray like you pray. Why is it so different? Please teach us the secret of true prayer. And so, Jesus graciously 
heeds the request and he teaches them in this way. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our bread for the day. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. That's it. So, so simple. So strangely basic and concise. Well, what about it then? Makes it so rich and full of the power of God's Spirit. Well, off the bat, you probably recognize this prayer, but you're more familiar with the longer version in Matthew chapter 6, in which it's a little bit more elaborated. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it ends with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the, the variation of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and Luke simply tells us that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray more than once. He probably taught it a dozen of times, uh, but just two of those instances are recorded for us, respectively, in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. But what's important to observe is that in each of these two instances recorded for us, the fact that there's a slight variation tells us that the Lord's Prayer was not meant to be a strict, rigid formula that must be repeated verbatim as though there were some secret power in the string of those words, as though it were some spell or incantation to chant. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to recite it. Of course, the Lord's Prayer has rightly been the recitation of choice amongst Christians for 2,000 years, because there's a beautiful value in liturgy. But when God's people, in unison, recite the truths of God together. That's actually what we're doing when we're singing, isn't it? When we sing together as a congregation, in unison, we sing, we speak the same gospel truths together. But the point is that here, Jesus was not giving a formulaic string of words to mindlessly repeat, but he was providing a model a certain shape and contour that conveys the spirit of true prayer. In other words, what's important here is the content. And not only that, but the logical flow of that content. Where does it begin? What's being emphasized? What is not being emphasized? And how are our minds being trained not just to pray, but to think? by this Lord's Prayer. That's what we have to pay attention to. And well, it's essential for us then to observe how this prayer begins. What is the starting point? Now, this is such a practical question, isn't it? Because many times, when we come before God in prayer, don't we sometimes feel like we don't quite know where to begin? A lot of times, so many thoughts are just running through our minds. So many concerns weighing down on us. We often come with divided hearts, weak desires, or even the weight of guilt and shame. And we're a big jumbled mess most of the time, at least I am. And so where do we even begin? Well, Jesus says, begin like this. Father. Now I know that we're familiar with this language of calling God Father. We know this to be the typical way in which we address God as believers. But we really need to pause to reflect on the wonder and the privilege of calling God 
Father. In fact, that's all we're going to focus on today. Just this one word of this opening address. Because this one word, Father, teaches us to anchor all of our prayers in the meditations of the gospel. Of knowing God as Father. You know, that's really the root issue of all of our prayerlessness. Why our prayer lives are so weak and lifeless. Because too often, we, if we're honest, we approach prayer as some spiritual activity we have to give to God. A spiritual duty to fulfill rather than seeing prayer as the means of receiving His grace in the gospel. True prayer, as Jesus taught and demonstrated, is to be filled by God, immersing ourselves in His infinite love poured out to us through Christ by the Holy Spirit. If prayer ever feels dull and tiresome, it is a symptom that signifies that we have flipped things upside down. And that we're trying to fill the fountain of grace with with the tiny water buckets of our souls instead of, of drinking our fill from that fountain. And so here, from the very outset of this prayer, Jesus is correcting us by teaching us to come and rest in the gospel whenever we pray. You cannot pray apart from the gospel. And all of that is encapsulated in calling God Father. Because in this one word, it's really the summary of the entire gospel. Because look, first things first. In our default state as sinners, we can't just call God Father on a whim. He doesn't allow himself to be called Father just by anyone. Look, no child can or should Call me dad. If they do, well, we've got a lot of issues there. Only my son can call me dad. And so for God to be called father by anyone assumes that there is this exclusive, special relationship of his highest love and affection and favor with that person. But look through the Bible. And we see a very different picture of mankind's relationship to God or lack thereof because we have sinned against God who is infinitely holy and as a result there is an infinite separation between holy God and sinful man which is all of us you know in Isaiah chapter 6 as the prophet Isaiah sees a vision of the throne of God And there he sees just a shadowy glimpse. That's not even the full thing. If he saw the full thing, Isaiah would have been dead. But he saw just a shadowy glimpse of God sitting on his throne. And it was so glorious and so mountainous of a presence that the spigots of the doorposts were shaking at his thunderous voice, as it says. And there Isaiah sees that God is surrounded by seraphim, this special class of holy angels, and their name means the burning ones, and they have six wings. Two would be scary enough, and they got six. Two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. 
And their whole purpose and existence is to hover around the nearness of God's presence, crying out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. That's what they do. They hover around God's throne. And that actually explains why they look the way they do. They look kind of weird, don't you think? Six wings, what's up with that? Well, when God creates any living creature, He always designs them in such a way that is befitting to their environment. For instance, why do fish have gills? It's because they live underwater. And to befit that environment, they need gills to breathe. If I had gills, no, no one would be coming to this church. They'd be, they'd be saying, that, that there's an alien on that pulpit. But to befit their environment, fish have gills. Well, what about the seraphim? Why do they have six wings? Because the environment in which they live is the very near presence of God. And so they must have two extra pairs of wings to cover their face and cover their feet. So as to say that they must cover themselves head to toe because they cannot look upon the glory of the Lord. Even for such holy, sinless angels of moral perfection, they must cover themselves perpetually from the intimate holiness of God's glorious presence. How much more then for unholy, filthy sinners like us? Hence, when Isaiah saw this vision and saw what was going on and realized where he was, how did he react? He didn't go, Hey, what's up, God? You know, it's been a long time. I haven't talked to you in a few weeks. But hey, listen, my, sword's been, my, my throat's been kind of sore these days. Could, could you just patch it up a little bit? Thanks, amen. That's how many people pray. But how did Isaiah react? Woe is me. For I am done for. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. The great prophet Isaiah himself was undone, spiritually demolished at just this distant glimpse, this vision of the throne of God as a spectator because he knew himself to be a sinner before the holy God. This is why it is utterly foolish and futile for anyone to think that they can be good enough for God. Just be a good person, do enough good deeds to earn their way to heaven. Listen, no one is good enough. No one is righteous before the Holy God as sinners. And to think that we can be by our own paltry merit is to defame God and to blaspheme His infinite glory. You see, God is transcendent. As sinners, there is an infinite chasm that separates us, the unholy, from Him who is holy. We can never climb our way up this infinite ladder. Even one sin is sufficient to condemn us eternally because God is infinitely holy. And so we are all stuck in this infinitely deep pit of our hopeless condemnation as sinners. And we're all destined to the eternal judgment we all deserve, which awaits us. 
This is the consequence of sin. But what has God done for helpless and hopeless sinners like us? He has made a way, when there was no way, a way for us to come to Him by Him coming down to us. Down, entering into this pit of the fallen world by taking on human flesh. The infinite creator came in the likeness of his own creatures. As Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on true humanity and was born into this world in Bethlehem from the womb of a virgin. That he might come and take the place of sinners whom he came to save by living the life of perfect, sinless obedience which we could never live. And then to suffer the wrath of God on the cross in our place when we're the ones that are supposed to be there on the cross. So that there on the cross He would receive the punishment meant for sinners, satisfy God's wrath, and give us His perfect righteousness which He alone earned so that we might be able to come to God through Him. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all this is freely given to those who simply confess that they are hopeless, guilty sinners who can never save themselves. And they put their trust in Jesus to save them on the basis of what He has done and completed. This is the gospel, the good news that we can never climb up that infinite ladder that separated us from God. And so Christ descended that infinite distance down to us. All of this so that we could be near to God in His presence. So that we might be able to approach God's throne and not have to react as Isaiah did. Woe is me! That's what Hebrews chapter 10 is saying, isn't it? That we have confidence to enter the holy place of the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that is open for us as His flesh was torn. The veil that separated God and man torn open as Jesus' flesh was torn. And so then let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And the reality of Hebrews chapter 10, what it's talking about, is it culminates and it reaches its climax all in this one word, to call God Father. Sinners, once separated from Him eternally, unable to have any kind of fellowship with Him, that in Christ, we're brought, hear it now, we're brought into not just a tolerable relationship with God, but into the most intimate relationship of love and affection as our own Father. You know, we have to understand that it was shocking for the Jews and for the disciples to hear Jesus pray. And look at all the times Jesus has recorded praying. He always addressed God as Father. We see this Preeminently in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. Holy Father. And we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any possible way, let this cup pass from me. Always praying, Father. No one else prayed like Jesus prayed. Because no one called God 
father. No one dared. That was unthinkable because it was to elevate yourself to the position of where God is, barging into his presence before the throne, as it were, and assuming a special intimate relationship with the holy God. That was practically blasphemy, presuming upon God. In fact, that's why John chapter 5 verse 18 says that this is why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because they heard him call God Father, making himself equal with God. Now, of course, the problem was that the Jews didn't believe Jesus testifying that he is the eternal son of God, one with the Father in holy love and union for all eternity. But look, the, 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 just the mere fact that Jesus addressed God as Father when he prayed, this alone made even his disciples say, whoa, 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 Jesus, how are you praying that? How are you able to say that word? Teach us. Teach us how to pray like you. It was shocking for them to hear Jesus call God Father. But what was even more shocking, that on this day, they heard Jesus say, okay, I'll teach you how to pray because you're my disciples. Ready for it? I want you to speak to God the same way I speak to Him. I want you to begin to call Him your own Father. You see, this one word that begins the Lord's Prayer, it is stunning. Their jaws would have dropped. Well, that is the privilege and blessing of the Gospel. Here in this opening word of the prayer, Jesus is inviting all His disciples into the fellowship of the Father and the Son in the Spirit, sharing in this holy Trinitarian love, because that's what He's come to do, to take us for Himself and to take us unto Himself. Because as John chapter 1, 12 says, to all who receive Christ, who believe in His name, He gives the right for them to become children of God. Christian, do you understand and do you realize that because you are in Christ, you have, by virtue of being His child, every right of all of God's affections, all of God's delights, and all of God's inheritance, just as my own son does. But you, with God, because you have been made His child by faith. You know, all the times that Jesus is recording us saying, Father, or really all the times Jesus was recorded saying anything, Jesus was actually speaking in Aramaic. That was the language of the Jews at the time. Um, specifically, he was speaking in Galilean Aramaic. But it's translated to us in Greek, because that's what the language uh, of the Bible is written in. And then that's translated for us into English, for us English speakers, so that we might understand it. But the reason I bring this up is because in our English Bibles, or even in the Greek, it, it, the, 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 just the word father can, can sometimes sound very formal, which it is, but it can sound formal and even polite to the point of feeling distant. And that's because of our modern culture. Uh, most of us probably, at least especially the younger ones, we probably don't address 
our earthly fathers as father. Uh, even if we refer to them as in the third person as, oh yeah, that's my father, probably very few of us actually say, hello, father, good morning, father. Uh, at least I don't. Well, for many reasons, I don't speak English to my dad. But in Mark chapter 14, we get a glimpse of the exact syllables that Jesus uttered when he said, Father, because the Aramaic is transliterated for us. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, how does he begin his prayer? Abba, Father. That's what Jesus was saying every time he prayed. Abba. Just like that. We have a prophet, a young prophet in this congregation. But it is a term. You even hear from the lips of a little child. A term of such endearment. Such affection. Such intimate love. And you see this in a similar fashion in many different languages around the world. Baba. Which is a lot of times in Middle Eastern culture. Papa. Or as I call my dad in Korean, Abba. Now, don't get all weird about it. You know, there, there are some people who take this too literally and they start praying, Hi, Daddy, to God. That's, that's weird. This whole God is my daddy theology was very popular when I was in college. And it was just one of many fads which proved to be very irreverent and frivolous. It wasn't childlike faith, but it was childish. It was very immature and it didn't last very long. But the point is, that Jesus, God the Son, expressed the, the, the deepest affection permitted by human language whenever he prayed to God the Father through his human lips. Abba. And he says to us, I have come that you might share in this love between me and the Father. I want you to speak to the Father the same way I speak to Him because in me you are now His rightful child. And isn't this why Paul says in Romans 8.15 that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom even we cry, Abba, Father. What an amazing thought. Christian, do you understand that you have been adopted by God? The holy, holy, holy God. And that you have been brought into the realm of His infinite love. And that this is constant. Notice when the disciples said, teach us to pray, Jesus did not say, okay, There's two things. One, on the days in which you have been excelling in obedience and you feel a little more worthy to talk to God on those days when you say, I want you to say, Father. But on the other days when you are really struggling with sin and you've been disappointing and you feel like a failure, I want you to say, oh, holy judge, please spare me the rod justice one more time. That's not what Jesus says. There are no contingencies. No qualifiers. In effect, Jesus is saying, whenever you pray, every time you pray, begin with this. Father, Abba, Father. He is your Father. Rejoice in it. Be comforted by it. Be strengthened by it. Immerse yourself in the gospel. Rest 
in the finished work of Christ. This is what you must meditate on. All true prayer must flow from this fountainhead of the gospel. This is what will give you joy in prayer. It is communion with God. It is the means of receiving His grace. That whenever you open your mouth and you address God as Father... You are preaching to yourself the good news of all that He has done to make you His own. And that in Christ, you are eternally and unchangingly beloved by the Holy God. What about on the days when you are weighed down by guilt and shame and condemnation? Oh, especially on those days. You must call upon your Father in heaven And be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. So that you can say, Father. And as we've mentioned, every time Jesus prayed, He always, every time addressed God as Abba, Father. Except the one time on the cross, as He was suffering the wrath of God meant for you, There he prayed. How did he address God? My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? All those times he prayed expressing the deepest affection and nearness and intimacy with God the Father. And here on the cross he expresses distance, abandonment. Because he took on your guilt and shame and condemnation. He was forsaken and abandoned by the Father as it were, so that you might be adopted and purchased by His blood. You, Christian, you never need to fear that you don't deserve to call God Father because even that judgment and dread of being neglected by God, which was warranted by your sin, it was already fulfilled and experienced on your behalf by the beloved Son of God who felt abandonment from the Father. And so Christian, are you aware that when you insist on speaking to God always at a distance, at arm's length, because you lack confidence and assurance of your standing as His child, that every time you do, there's nothing more that grieves your Father who has loved you so much so that He gave His Son to redeem you and adopt you into His household. When Jesus says, I want you to pray by saying, Father, He's telling you, I have given my life so that you might enjoy perfect peace with your heavenly Father. So that you might know the joy and the assurance of the intimacy of His love. You see, Jesus is teaching us this, that true prayer begins with delighting in this joy and blessing of the gospel. True prayer is coming to the fount of every blessing and receiving the outpouring of his infinite divine love. Prayer is not just an arbitrary exercise of discipline or religious piety as though we were like performing a rain dance for some pagan god or or giving some spiritual presentation to pacify him. No, true prayer is grounded in rightfully claiming by faith the present promises of the gospel. So often we look at the gospel just as a mere past event. But it is to reclaim and to reaffirm 
the present blessings and promises of the gospel, confidently basking in the undeserved yet fully outpoured delight of God, who is our Father, as we are in Christ. Do you see the joy of prayer as Jesus taught? The the joy of approaching God as His infinitely beloved child. Do you know what it means to be infinitely beloved by God? Again, this is not just nice, exaggerated language. But to be infinitely loved by God means that the infinite holy God, who is in control of all of the universe and has many different affairs to attend to, that He loves you as though you were His only child. How? How do we know this? Because the infinite, eternal love the Father has for His only begotten Son is the same love flowing to you because you have been united to Christ by faith. What a comfort it is then to approach God as our Father. Even when circumstances are going awry, even when we are sick and we're not getting any better, even when things look like they are falling apart, beloved, you must call out to God your Father because therein lies your assurance that none of these things are happening because God is upset at you, because He is cursing you, because you have lost favor in His sight, or because He has forgotten about you or abandoned you and forsaken you. No, all of these things are being worked out for your highest good, for your sanctification, for your maturation as His child. And you can trust Him. And you know this because He is and will always be your Heavenly Father. Not just your Lord, not just your Master. All of those things, yes, that is who God is. But chiefly, supremely, your Father. That is how... He wants us to know Him and relate to Him first and foremost, that we might be saturated in His love, comforted by His presence, and secure in His grace. And all of our rest is found in the comfort of our Father's presence. And this is why Jesus could pray so persistently, so unceasingly, because He was enjoying that perfect fellowship with the Father, delighting in His love. Prayer was not a burdensome task for Him. It was a delight. It was the the most delightful communion of rest and peace with the Father. And Jesus wants us to experience the same. And so He has taught us here to anchor every thought and word and prayer in this essential gospel truth. If only we grasped better each day the joy and blessing of calling God our Father. You know, we would be such more prayerful people. How holy we would be if we all believed this fully and lived like it, that the sovereign eternal God who reigns over heaven and earth and not a single electron so much as flutters apart from His ordaining, And who even now, the seraphim must continue to veil their eyes to His holy presence. And yet this holy God, He delights in calling Himself our Father. And He delights in being our 
Father. And He has proven that love by sending His Son to die for us so that by His death He might take us once spiritual orphans into the warmth of His gracious home to be His rightful heirs and children. Church, it is when we take the time to pause and meditate on all that it means for us to call God our Father, that is the spark plug to fruitful prayer. That is what launches us into praise and adoration, thanking Him for all that He has done, praising Him for all that He is, trusting Him for the faithful Father He has proven Himself to be, and wanting now to so please the Father whom we love and by whom we are loved. It all begins with knowing God as our Father through Christ the Son and rejoicing in this truth. Beloved, do you know this affection for God as your Father? This is the prime test of whether or not your soul has truly been converted versus you've just been simply going through the motions of dead religion, even within the doors and walls of the church for many years. Do you know anything of this intimacy with God, of being loved by Him in Christ, and wanting therefore to know Him and love Him more? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, understand this, you cannot pray to God apart from Christ. I know it is a popular thing in the world today whenever anything happens. Prayers lifted up. Prayers for this, prayers for that. But God does not listen to the prayers of those whom He does not know. God only listens to His children. And you are not His child, non-Christian. But I have amazing news for you. You can become His child by confessing your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And God will adopt you joyfully into His family. That's what He has done for us, for every believer, as Ephesians 1.5 says. And it is His sincere desire and will to rescue you from your sin. And not only that, but to bestow upon you every perfect gift and every spiritual blessing from above, from His heart, that you do not deserve, but that which He lavishes upon sinners because He is gracious and merciful and kind. He is the Almighty, Infinite Father. And so, non-Christian, come to the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. Let's pray together. O gracious Father in heaven, we are reminded and amazed anew that those words could exit our lips. Thank you for the love with, with which you have purchased us, saved us, the love you have shown us in Christ. We confess that even as believers, we have such a hard time grasping and comprehending the, the vastness of this love. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have grieved you by doubting this love. But Lord, renew us as you have by your word that we might walk most joyfully delighting in your presence 
and that we would love you as we immerse ourselves in your love. And we thank you that you have given us the gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And that through these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup, you continually remind us as a visible sign and seal of your never-ending love for us, which has been secured by Jesus' death on the cross. O Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, use this sacrament to strengthen our faith, to reaffirm that love to us, and that you would build us up by it in the most holy faith for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.